Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program traditionally based in Timor-Leste and it has a singular vision to promote the health and well-being of veterans and their families. Due to the current restrictions from COVID-19, we are running slightly abridged programs on the Gold Coast with the same vision and same aim. We're using these opportunities to sit down with our participants either one-on-one or in a group setting and conduct podcast interviews to capture their stories and their lessons learnt, providing insights we can all learn from as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journeys and help others do the same. We'll be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. So whether you're out and about, listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll get a lot out of listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Uh, we've got a couple more interviews uh, in the pipeline for the tail end of TA18. And sitting down with me uh, now, I have Daniel McKenzie. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, we just started uh, having a bit of a conversation now. I thought we'd uh, hit the start button so we make sure we capture everything. But um, So you are a more unique participant in the sense that you actually aren't defence per se, but you were United Nations serving in East Timor and Afghanistan. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. United cool. Nations, UNDP in Afghanistan for two years on rotations and yep. uh, College of Surgeons in East Timor walking Working alongside military assets in uh, East Timor, yeah. Wow, okay. And so what was your func- your, your key role? I know you're a nurse practitioner now. Was it the same back then? Or Yeah, yeah. So just providing uh, – well, East Timor was slightly different. We were there to increase capacity and build an intensive unit to allow higher levels of surgery. Um, but obviously the security environment, we had a lot of link to do with the UN police and yep. uh, personnel uh, – you, uh, military personnel, like uh, it was a platoon base around the corner from the hospital that I utilised a lot for free lunches okay. and uh, <laughs> security help when we had 2,000 IDPs in the actual hospital, right? So and it was a very tribal mentality. So if there's a white guy there or the rest of the contingent who were not non-Indigenous uh, working were secured in a theatre where it was very secure, no one could go in there. I was the only one working in intensive care where the local population could come freely. So, you know, I'm trying to resuscitate someone or someone's really sick and we're giving a drug and they die, um, inadvertently or for whatever reason, the the tribal response is, you killed them, we kill you. Mm -hmm. So they come at you with machetes, they come at you with weapons, they try and... Pincer you into the like, you know there's four exits into the the ward or the ICU and they can't, they block each one, so um, it gets a bit entertaining at times. <laughs> so what years were you in Timor? Timor, I was 2007 to 2009, so around where the militia was floating around and yep. where the coup was and stuff like that. Right. Okay. Well, we might have chewed some of the same dust. I was there in uh, 2009 as well. Oh and, yeah, uh, we definitely Camp Camp Phoenix. Oh, uh, nice. In Dilly there. So where were you positioned day to day? Uh, Dilly Hospital. Dilly Hospital. Makes sense. Nice, nice, nice. So two years. Two years over there with just, yeah, the occasional trip back home, I assume. Yeah, yeah. It was a full-time living um, gig. Yep. So you live there, not like Afghan where you rotate. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us about your Afghan Afghan time as well. Oh, Afghan was really cool. Um, I had a team of twenty to twenty five medics and nurses and doctors that I was in charge with, who we spread around the country. Okay. Um, and we looked after UN international and local UN staff primarily, but we did involve in looking after international uh, forces mm-hmm. from time to time. I lived on an American base in Jalalabad. The name of the base escapes me, but it was the main one. And we helped look after the Americans quite a lot and mm-hmm. got a strong rapport and really enjoyed my time up there. Fantastic. And uh, what years were this? Oh, that was 10-11. 10-11. Again, chewed some of the same dust. Oh, my oh God, really? it never, never ends. Yeah, I was, Afghanistan. Well, I was in Afghanistan twice, 2011 and 2013. Oh, wow. So we were obviously in uh, Uruzgan province for the majority and sometime down in Kandahar as well. Yeah, I was Jaybad in uh, Gades and Kabul. Yeah, right. Fantastic. And so to have, how was so how old are you at that, at that point in time? Oh, in I had life? my 30th birthday in Kabul. Wow. So... <laughs> So what was life for a, a 30-year-old working under the UN still at this point? Yep. Yeah. So as a nursing specialist, what was what was life like? Life was varied. Um, my 30th birthday was very unique. We, <laughs> we, uh, we used the UN aircraft, the UN assets to fly in a whole lot of international meat. We had a barbecue till 1am. I had, I had to have guards... Guarding rooms full of guns because obviously alcohol and weapons don't mix, and everyone's carrying every private contractor in in Afghanistan carries a weapon, so they had to be secured away. And then yep. the military types, well, they do what they mm. want to do with their weapons. Yep. Um, yeah, and that was that was crazy. Um, but we just provide care. Uh, it was a bit difficult because the local population obviously needed a lot of care mm. and there were a lot of deficits in provide, uh, care provision. But because of the civic situation, it was very difficult to even look to fill that gap. Mm. I went to one refugee camp and that took 80 people to secure the compound before we could even start treating people. So obviously that's a high-resource, high-risk and you know, they just they weren't prepared to do that very often. Wow, and I guess uh, one of the things that I think anyone who served in Afghanistan is sort of coming to terms with is um, what ended up coming of the place. You know, we went over there for so long and such for long so hard, for so long, yeah, right. for so hard. Yeah, and yeah. what have we got for it? Yeah, yeah. How did how did you process that? Oh, I think, I think. I like to think that we swam for as hard as long as we could and helped as many as we could and Afghans took the rest, you know, like you can't, we couldn't change what happened Mm. really from an individual person over there working, you know, that was political and structural stuff beyond an individual's control. So I, I did a few things over there that I was proud of and, had an impact on people, some people's lives, and absolutely, I've got to walk away with that because if I think about what's left behind or the people that we supported and then we're left behind, then that gets pretty soul destroying. And there's still a lot who are involved in international mm. forces who helped, who are not out, and you know, and now they're under a rule that is dangerous to their lives. So it, it's 
It's upsetting. It's complicated, isn't it? Oh, complicated. I like that word. Yes, yeah. complicated. <laughs> and what about your peers? So you, because this is a unique, a unique conversation. I've, I've never really unpacked the whole Afghanistan piece from the perspective of someone who wasn't actually military, but was still there, was still absolutely on the front line as much as anyone. Because um, we're always looking at it from the kind of military perspective, but you must have other peers who are in the UN that you're still in yeah. contact with. How are they? Processing this, they drink a lot of whiskey. <laughs> they they have some poor coping strategies. I think um, it hurt. It stung. You know, we spent the main part of UNDP when I was there was to set up the elections, right, and help support the pollings, make sure it was all legit, to, and and really support the freedom of the nation, right. And then that goes, it's gone. And people lost their lives doing that. UN compounds got hit, people got killed, mm-hmm. and for that specific purpose. And now that's no longer, it's gone. And I think that upsets people quite a bit. Um, it's no one's fault. No. But uh, it, it hurt. Some of my friends mm. have found it very difficult because of the amount of emotional input and also the. The friendships they made with the locals and, you know, the the local police chief in Jalalabad, well, he's not having a nice time, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's dangerous for those people and it's uh, their families at risk and, yeah, it's tough. And since, the, um, uh, uh, because, you know, as we saw on the news in late last year, it was the, all the planes taking off from Kabul, yep. you know, the last sort of people struggling to get out of there. Did you have any friends who... Were unable to get out of there, or who are still still there in the midst of all that. I had a friend who got out, but le- had to leave his wife and number of children behind. Uh, he got to Germany, um, but yeah, half his family are still. He was an Afghan, or yeah, he was that. He was yeah. an Afghan driver, actually. Right, right, right. Yeah, you in vehicle. It's com- it's, uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's like Facebook, it's Facebook. It's complicated. It's and it's risky. It's uh, a high risk, yeah. and just getting to the airport, and you know there were explosions there, and mm. obviously the Americans took some serious hits there during that time, and um, you know they, were, they play for keeps, and it hurts when you play for keeps. <laughs> that's exactly right, and so that's well in terms of your time there, that's going back a decade. Talk us through what's been happening since then. I came out, I look, I, I found it difficult, you know, you, you meet people in Dubai and everyone's looking behind their shoulder, especially SF guys who I trained with in JBAD, they're having a beer and they're like this, well, you can't see it on radio, but they're looking behind their shoulder every five seconds, you know, their level, height and level awareness is high. I was in a bar and this girl grabbed my arm just in a gentle way and I put it in a lock and pushed her against the wall because I was very mm. not used to touch and I deemed it as a threat, so I responded as such. And so that takes a little bit of time to get out of that environment or that response to those environments. Mm. So, you know, definition of PTSD is the same response outside the environment, right? Yep. So yep. that takes a little time to adjust. And how much support is there for guys like you in, in terms of what does the UN or any of its subsidiaries or anyone, any organisation? subsidiary, it's zero. Right. So there's not even a psych 
it's like debrief at the end. You're just you're kidding. It's nothing. Zero. If I was the UN in New York City or on the permanent uh, UN team, which I wasn't, I was there for the deployment only, mm-hmm. um, then it's different. But if you're just purely part of that deployment, mm. there's nothing. It's very different to some other. So you're just dumped. And that can make things more difficult to adjust. And in terms of what you did do to get yourself back on your feet or continue work you just found a job in nursing or what was next for you i went to tiwi island thursday island i oh, yeah. uh, running solar islands around around tiwi islands near png for a bit um solo clinics and um it, that was a slow introduction because you uh, back in Australia, but you're still got rural and less rules, and it's a bit of the wild west up there still. So mm-hmm. you can slowly integrate back. And then after I did that for a while, I came back to Melbourne. That was a bit of an adjustment. Um, didn't know anyone. All my friends had kind of moved on, and um, I went working at Peter Mac, which is a cancer hospital. Yep. And, yeah, now I do a senior role there and enjoy that. And I work in juvie. I always thought I'd end up in juvie. But, <laughs> but not in the way you thought. <laughs> no, no, not the way that it's turned out. <laughs> well, that's good to know, mate. And, uh, and how did you find yourself on Team More Awakening? I guess how did you find out about the program and then what drew you to it? I heard a lot about the program. I'm actually really good friends with Mick Stone from East Timor Times and we've kept in touch for a very long time and he's mentioned it a lot and he's always said if you ever want to come, you're more than welcome. I know you don't meet the brief exactly. Sure. But we will allow you to come on Mm -hmm. for special circumstances of being a health professional and time in those environments. Yep. Uh, That made me feel very welcome and... I was able to work my roster around and take time off work and it appealed – so I jumped at it. appealed because it looked like I could learn from it prof- from a professional perspective but also from a personal level I could learn things to do things better, to allow my life to be better and I think – I've got some significant health problems myself. I've got a brain tumour in my left parietal lobe and I've had stomach cancer or mesoteric lymphoma in my stomach. So health and wellness is something uh, that's become more important to me and having an underst- more an understanding of that rather than just traditional health approaches is something that I've really wanted to know more about. Amazing. And what has been, we sort of touched on it later on this evening when we get to do the team or what has been your team or awakening kind of exercise, but I guess we can unpack that a little bit now. What what has been the biggest takeaway for yourself from the program so far? In traditional, like what I work in at work, it's about if you have a disease, we treat the disease. Mm-hmm. So that gives you back to baseline, like zero baseline, right? Yep. What this program tries to do is make you flourish so you get you above zero get you flourishing at a nine or a ten not just get rid of your illness which is puts you at zero yep. so learning to flourish learning 
to eat really well, like just an example, but yep. like eat really well, exercise, meditate, get your mind right, balance your time, have a fulfilling life, not just get rid of the cancer and where you go and maybe exercise a couple of days a week and you'll be fine. Well, you might be fine, but you won't be flourishing. You won't be an optimal. And this program always has continued to look at optimal or flourishing. And uh, that has been my main eye-opener and something I will take to my patients as well. Like it's not just get rid of your cancer. What else can we do to make you better? It's a completely Uh, different paradigm, isn't it? Huge. It's opened my eyes. Like, you know, I'm really going to change the way I communicate with my patients. And obviously there's um, holistic health things that health professionals can certainly advocate. Holistic health is becoming a buzzword in traditional healthcare, but I think we're a little bit behind the eight ball. Research, these things, trends come out 30 years ago and it takes about 30, (laughs) 20, 30 years for the research to come out. I think you're in the same room when John was talking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, there's a... A delayed period, sort of period where there's there's a there's a cohort of people that know something works, and then it's like it needs to go through all it needs to pay homage to academia through this long-winded process until eventually someone Everyone says goes, oh, it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like the, the the example I kind of draw parallels to is um you know mindfulness and meditation. You know, it's yeah. like been around for three thousand years, but it's like do you know according to modern research, uh, it's now revealed. Yes. But meditation actually works. <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's been a few people that knew that a bit longer than 10 years yes, ago. Yeah, but like uh, love it, love it. Okay, mate. And uh, I guess just to wrap up, what's what's next for you now? Um, what, what are you going to sort of – what's your immediate action after this program? Uh, look, I will return to looking after my patients at Peter Mac, but I think I will alter my approach and talk about holistic healthcare in a new way and – reinvigorate some programs that are available and certainly uh, support uh, Mick and Gary and the others and these team uh, and team or, or veteran cares team mm-hmm. as much as they want me to and they've got a few little projects they want me to help out on and yeah I'm more than happy to and I will be doing that fantastic mate well thank you so much for your time thank us for being on the the program we'd love to have you back and support in whatever way you can Thank you so much. Thanks for your time, man. That was really cool. Cheers, Daniel. Bye for now. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And if you do have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au. And we do, of course, encourage you to share this podcast out to anyone who you feel may benefit from it. Thank you so much, and we look forward to connecting with you on the next podcast. Bye for now.